0: Remember leaving the house and going to stuff? Well, it's back because Great Big Owl is bringing some of our favorite shows to the London podcast. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ...festival starting September the 2nd, and we'd love to see you there. So if you're a fan of... Two Mr. P's in a podcast. Right. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. and Roger
1: My mate bought a toaster
0: Friends with Friends
1: The The One Show Show
0: Richard and Greta
1: From Queer to Eternity Wrestle Me Or Just Daytime Drinking
0: Then go to the King's Place website and grab some tickets now And by some tickets, we ideally mean eight tickets, that's one for each show Actually bring a friend and make that 16 tickets Great Big owl. the only podcast network with the audacity to ask you to buy 16 tickets in one go but we'll be thrilled if you just buy one. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family.
2: This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words.
0: What do you to listen to? Um, <laughs> Chant music. Chart music.
2: Hey up, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 61 of Chart Music. I'm your host, Al Needham. With me once again are Sarah B. Hi, hi. And Simon Price. Hello, hello. So... On the block for this episode is July the 25th, 2003. And I'm not going to lie to you, Pop Crazy Youngsters, right now I'm feeling like a cross between a high court judge and me <laughs> mam when I took her in for her first curry. She said that I wasn't to worry if she didn't like anything as she already had a pan of chips cut up her home waiting for her just in case. I'm, I'm oblivious to this era and I'm fearful of this era. I'm not going to lie. What have you got um cut up waiting at home for you if you don't get along with this top of the pops my wrists <laughs> I mean, it's a bit stupid because it's it's still top of the pops. It's still pretty much the same format. It's
1: still number one. It's
2: still number one. Sort of asterisk. The, the acts that are on tonight, then then you know, there's very little that shit in this episode. I have to say, <laughs> mm. but I don't know fuck all about virtually any of them. Mm-hmm. So my first question to the panel is: What is the difference? between the music of 2003 and the music of today? Because, to my mind, this episode could have gone on last week. I think the answer is very little. Mm.
3: And that may just be a function of us being old farts who yeah. can't differentiate the minute differences and shifts in pop. But I do think it's an objective, uh, sort of real fact, that sort of new trends and, and changes in, in music have slowed right down. Yeah. Probably... From the late 90s onwards. And yeah, you could pretty much parachute most of this episode into 2021. And very little of it would seem particularly anachronistic. I suppose things that have come along since include, you know, that kind of mumble rap stuff Mm. that you'd probably expect to see some of that going on in a more modern episode, kind of emo rap and all that business. But other than that, Boy bands, you know, will always be with us and dancehall, Jamaican reggae inflected hits and the sort of token metal thing. And if you sort of make the uh, comparative leap backwards from 2023, sort of 18 years earlier than that, which would be what, 1985? Oh, my God, so much is, it would have changed, wouldn't it? So
1: Yeah, there's, there's probably a certain kind of recirculation and recyclement of, of sort of influence that is now the, the sort of churn of it is steadier, maybe. Mm. And there's kind of more cross-pollination now between genres and genre is composting down and down and down. Mm. But, you know, that was happening here. Mm. It's a tricky question. That's an imponderable, which I'll have to ponder For a bit longer.
2: I only said it to delay having to go through this episode, so just tell me (laughs) to fuck off and we'll get on with it. (laughs) All right then, Pop Craze Young says, it is now time to go way back to July of 2003. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the Pops more than we have.
1: We've got intruders in the building, and they're eyeing up our talent. Oi, teacher, leave those kids alone. It's still number one.
2: It's Top of the Pops. It's half past seven on Friday, July the 25th, 2003, and Top of the Pops, as is its wont in its waning years, is on its ass. The falling ratings of the show and calls for its demise has been an oft used stick, which the tabloids have beaten the BBC with ever since the early 90s, and the show has been locked into a pattern of low ratings, leading to a new producer, leading to a makeover, leading to rising ratings, leading to falling ratings, leading to another producer, and so on and so on panel. It seems like Top of the Pops has been on death row for 10 years by this point. What's what's the reason for that?
1: I mean, there's kind of lots of reasons and, and no reason, I guess. Mm. Primarily, anything that's been going for this long, it's kind of not a natural lifespan for a show, is it? You know, it's like animals kind of... When you see like really old animals, they always look really weird because nature kind of does them in when they're still young. The show's been going for 40 years and it sort of lost its way in that profound and irreparable way that long-running things generally do. It's like the centre cannot hold whatever you're doing. If you've been doing it for so long that like nobody who was involved in it at the start is still involved, that culture has changed... Every element has changed and there are such forces being brought to bear on it that like nothing can survive that pressure. It's like The Simpsons has now been bad for mm. longer than it was great. And its legacy is completely secure and it will yeah. always have been a great show. But, you know, it, it is not what it was. And the same thing has happened to Top of the Pops, really, is that everything about it has changed And there's a kind of Mm self-consciousness when you start to focus intently on every aspect of a thing and try to analyse and micromanage what exactly is going wrong and what's right and what do we like and what do we not like? Who's the audience? What side of the bed do they get out of in the morning? Hmm. How many eyelashes do they have? You can end up sort of destroying things by just over analysing them. Mm. When you start a thing, there's an innocence about it and everyone is, let's put on a music show. We'll have some bands. It'll be lovely. And then... After a few decades, you're like, but do people still like this? And why? And why not? And that process, I think, is just like, it's just death by a thousand cuts, isn't it? Mm.
3: I like this idea of uh, TV shows having a natural longevity like animals. It's like the Hayflick limit. Do you know about that? No. Yeah, it's this theory. I, I learned it from uh, going to one of those Gunter von Hagen's uh, exhibitions, you know, where he, he plastinates yeah. human bodies. Oh um, yeah. it's, it's this theory that um, biological cells in, in an animal's body or human body can only replicate themselves a finite number of times and then you just conk out. Mm. This is why immortality is not a thing. Although there are um, things that do challenge that. For example, lobsters. Lobsters, lobsters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which which <laughs> s- some some types of lobster can live to be at least sort of seven hundred until some arsehole catches them and boils them in a pan. But yeah, the Hayflick limit for for television programs possibly is a thing. I was wondering about Top of the Pops in two thousand and three, and. It had a few predators out there, as mm. as do lobsters. But the internet was not yet really one of them. Um, no. and the internet was is still in its infancy, and YouTube hadn't even been launched yet, I think I'm right in saying. No. So in terms of getting your f- visual fix of pop, um, the internet really wasn't killing it. But what the internet was doing no. was changing the way people... Um, kind of got together as music fans and how you construct your identity as a music fan which in the past it would always be a consensual group effort that you would be a rude boy or a metler or or a hip-hop kid, but you would be doing it kind of in definition against everything else that was going on, and it was in the context Mm. of everything else that was going on. It would still have a nod to the rest of the world and be part of that world. And it was much easier by the early years of the millennium to consume your music and to construct your tribal identity. Mm. It's not just the centre cannot hold. The the, the centre wasn't even there and being looked at. You know, Top of the Pops was originally central to, to culture, but it sort of didn't play that role anymore. So once upon a time, you know, it would gather everything in, all these genres, every genre, every little scene, it would gather in the sort of most popular versions of that and then amplify them and make them more popular again. Whether you're, you know, a jangly indie band like Orange Juice or a horrible heavy metal band like Motorhead, mm. it would still have the function of taking you to the next level and then bringing you into the homes of people in shitty little towns who don't get to see gigs. Yeah. And I, I think that, that had kind of gone
2: by millennium, I really do. Top of the Pops was one of the BBC's flagship shows alongside things like Match of the Day and Panorama but none of those other shows got fucked about with as badly as Top of the Pops did. Mm. By the time Top of the Pops had moved out to Fridays, the charts had moved from Tuesdays to Sundays, which meant the charts were even more out of date by the time it got on Top of the Pops. Yeah, because
3: I suppose CD UK on ITV would be less than 24 hours after Top of the Pops, but dealing with a brand new chart because essentially CDUK was using the midweek chart, wasn't it? You know, sort of a spoiler for the, you know, the the Sunday evening chart. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, In the fast-moving world of pop, um, I, I suppose Top of the Pops was looking pretty stale by the time Friday
2: came yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, and of course with Countdown UK, when that became a thing, it turned out the bands were more interested in being on that than they were on Top of the Pops, because if you can get your shit out in front of the kids on a Saturday morning just before they're going into town with their pocket money, it's a better situation for them. That's a very clever bit of programming. Mm. It's
1: weird how it becomes, you know, it's just, it's not cool anymore. I mean, the, the kind of the great thing about it is that it was never cool in some way, but it kind of was by default. Mm i think and i mean it's very snazzy at this point but the trouble is as we know as we have experienced in in our careers once you start trying to chase an audience and pander to them like people know Mm, when they're being pandered to yeah even even dickheads know when you know they go wait a minute you're pandering to me i don't like it yeah um so it's kind of it's just turning that way and that's you know, it's kind of in the, the, the death spiral. of
2: it's, it's the poochy stage of Top of the Pops, <laughs> isn't it, this? It really is. They've rasterized this episode of Top of the Pops by 10%. <laughs> However, there has been a steady hand on this tiller for the past six years, and his name is Chris Cowe. Born in Sunderland in 1961, Chris Cowie went to Rye Hope Comprehensive School, where his English and drama teacher was Malcolm Garrett, who came to national attention in the mid-70s when his school production of the David Essex film Stardust made the cover of The Enemy and was filmed for an episode of the London weekend art show Aquarius. After the broadcast of that programme, Gary was approached out of the blue by a viewer called David Putnam, who persuaded him to pack up teaching and get involved in TV. After Gary landed a job as a researcher at Time Tease, he would regularly get former pupils, including Kawe, involved, and in 1979, Cowie was filmed and interviewed at his night job, DJing at the local Mecca ballroom for Time Teaser's new pop programme, All Right Now. After the interview, he was approached by Angela Wanfor, the head of Time Teaser's kids' programming, and invited to audition for a presenting gig he was immediately picked up by the station and given the job of co-presenting Check It Out a local bi-weekly youth show which is best known nowadays for the interview with Public Image Limited which they commenced by showing the band a film of local band The Angelic Upstarts being interviewed by Cowe as they took a stroll along the Tyne where they accused John Lydon of selling out and being an old man, called Public Image the worst band ever and stated that the Sex Pistol would have been a hundred times better with jimmy percy as their lead singer which led to Leiden tossing his mic at cowie and walking off set and also effing as well as jeffing <laughs> after all right now and check it out wound down in 1982 gary was given the job of producing a new time Tees pop show for the brand new channel Four the tube And while Cowie was still working as a presenter, he also became a trainee researcher on the show and by the mid-80s had worked his way up the ranks to become involved with tube specials and outside broadcasts. In 1987, just before the tube was phased out, Cowie went freelance as an assistant producer and linked up with Gary and 1-4's new production companies, leading him to get involved with Wired, Big World Cafe, The White Room, Jonathan Ross Presents, Channel 4's mid-90s coverage of Glastonbury, and linking up with Gary again to co-produce the first televised Brit Awards since the Fleetwood Fox debacle. In the spring of 1997, while he and Gary were working on creating a TV version of the Pepsi chart show for Channel 5, he was approached by the BBC to take over from Rick Blacksell as the producer of Top of the Pops and rescue a programme that was on the verge of being axed. Once installed as the new boss of the Pops, he reinforced changes that had already been set in motion by the interim producer Mark Wells, such as phasing out the practice of celebrity guest presenters and replacing them with a pool of Radio 1 DJs and CBBC presenters and getting acts to record performances in the studio in advance before their new singles had been released in order to use them when they actually made the charts. He also scrapped Red Hot Pop by Vince Clark as the theme tune in preference of crashing straight into the first single of the night. More importantly, he clamped right down on videos unless absolutely necessary, telling record companies that if they wanted their acts on the show, they would have to appear on set or not at all. This culminated in the most complaints ever made for an episode of Top of the Pops in December of 1997, when he was told that the Teletubbies, who had got to number one that week, would be unable to appear in the studio because they never left Teletubby land, (laughs)
3: leading
2: Cowie to play the video for only 40 seconds at the end. Yeah, fuck you, Tipsy Whipsy, or whatever the fuck you're called. In May of 1998, he commissioned a new-ish theme tune, a drum and bass version of Whole Lot of Love, a new, cleaner, 60s-inspired branding which he plastered all over the set. Then, in 2001, the BBC decided to push East Enders out to four episodes a week, which would require more space at Elstree, meaning that Top of the Pops had to squat at the Riverside Studios for a bit and was eventually brought back to its spiritual home in Television Centre in a studio built to cow his exact specifications and relaunched once again. While Cowie was being credited for writing the ship, adding on an extra 3 million viewers by the end of his first year, his paymaster sought out new revenue streams for the Pops, franchising the show out to Germany, France, Italy, Netherlands and Turkey, with the BBC version being exported to 87 countries, sometimes intact, other times with a local presenter doing the links. This, alongside the Top of the Pops magazine, which was first published in 1995 as a rival to Smash Hits and was selling half a million copies a month at its peak, video and DVD sales of Top of the Pops performances and a compilation CD series meant that Top of the Pops was bringing in an estimated £20 million a year to the BBC coffers. In 2001, the first edition of the Top of the Pops Awards, an attempt to give the BBC its own Brits, was broadcast, and a year later, Top of the Pops Saturday, a spin-off show bolted onto BBC One's Saturday morning programming, was introduced. However, by the summer of 2003, the viewing figures are dropping again, and Cowie has been making noises about more wholesale changes. He's already said that the top 40 is full of crap because they're dictated by record companies and no longer fulfills its role of providing a list of the most popular singles in the country, possibly due to the deployment of Judy Zook's satin tour (laughs) jackets. In an era where 20,000 single sales can bag you a number one single, he's pushing for the charts to be determined by the value of sales as opposed to volume and for radio plays to have more of an influence. As they do in America. So yes, Chris Cowie, a man with a with a rock solid pedigree, and also someone who clearly got what top of the pops was supposed to be all about. Um, in the interview for the Guardian to commemorate his first year in the job, he said. The most important thing about Top of the Pops is that it's BBC One at 7.30 prime time. I remember watching it as a kid, and your dad would like something, your mum would like something else, my brother and sister would like other things. It's real family viewing. Well, is it? Is it
1: now? Hmm.
3: First of all, there's so much to unpack with that whole backstory of Gary and Cowie. Yeah, I know. Sorry I waffled on Pope Craig's youngsters, but I had to get all that shit out. Because the footage of the uh, of of the Rye Hope Comprehensive, which is a uh, um, just outside Sunland, um that their production of Stardust, um directed by Mr. Gary. Yeah. Um it's it's there, I'm sure you'll put it on yes. the uh, on, on the on the playlist. Oh, the playlist most definitely. The, the, but yeah, um if you watch it, I mean first of all, you got Russell Harty introducing it. And I, I don't get it. I don't get why NME and ITV are so interested in this. It's what schools do or did. Mm. I suppose you can compare it to all the fuss over the Langley Schools music project, if you remember that. So, uh, yeah. for those who don't know what that, that was uh, in 1976 and 77, there was a school teacher in rural Canada called Hans Fenger who got the children to record these enthusiastic but very low-fi versions of songs like "Calling Occupants" and "Help Me Rhonda" and "Space Oddity," complete with all the sort of guileless bangs and crashes of a typical junior school orchestra, um, but performed with this real joy and charm. And, and the tapes were rediscovered and released as an album in 2001, and it kind of went viral. And it's now considered a masterpiece of outsider music. And it was actually performed live at the Royal yeah. Festival Hall in 2002 as uh, part of David Bowie's Meltdown Festival with London's school kids uh, right. instead of uh, what they should have done was get the middle-aged survivors of the 70s recordings <laughs> that would have been amazing <laughs> yeah. but the point with langley schools is um, it was discovered decades later and therefore it served as an evocative mm. time capsule which might have been the case with the rye Hope comprehensive stardust if the tapes had been discovered years later but what i don't get i'm really amazed that nme and itv gave a shit at the time what's What's that
2: about? Well, before that, they'd done a production of Tommy. Right. And I think on both occasions, they, they did the stage show before the actual films came out. All right, okay. I think Gary was seen as stereotypical 70s trendy teacher. Oh, God, isn't he just? Yes. Fuck <laughs> yeah. By the way, there's loads of
3: wrongness in that Right Hope thing. I mean, they, they stage a New Faces panel show, and there's a girl group who are billed as the Ronettes, but they sing to Do Ron, Ron which is a Crystal song, and that really annoys me for a start. Whoa. But the panel has this limp-wristed gay stereotype on it, which everyone in the audience finds hilarious. And there's loads mm. of sexist objectification of the 6 form girls, right? And yeah. the ITV crew isn't exactly innocent of that. There's lots of lingering on the girl group from the neck down. Yes! And, and then they interview them about their outfits, and one of the girls explains, Mr. Gary got a special person in to decide what we should wear white jumper and a black bra so it shows through black hot pants black (laughs) boots and black fishnets fucking a special person eh, mr (laughs) gary a special person Mm. wasn't jules holland was it christ i I guess it's interesting in hindsight in terms of television history because of that kind of macum mafia that emerged from all this and first of all gary getting a job in tv and then him handing out jobs to some of his former pupils. Yeah, why
2: don't we have fucking teachers oh, like fuck, that? Yeah,
3: exactly. Including Cowie, of course. Cowie's in the cast of the Rye Hope Stardust. Yes. And he's, don't you think, to look at even, he's very much Gary's mini me. Mm. All right, so he ends up as his <laughs> ex producer, Top of the Pops. I've got to say, <laughs> I can't hear the name Cowie without thinking of Collaterally Sisters on the day today, <laughs> when she goes, and it was a rather Cowie night for the pound. It stood at 3.9 against the German Bordello. That's up 0.5 against the Portuguese Starling, and down 100 against the bitch
0: Chris <laughs> yes exactly
3: oh and that, and uh, also on on uh YouTube and I'm sure you'll give this to the PC wise on the playlist as well is the um that version of, was it called Check It Out, the yes. show? It's basically nosing around. <laughs> At this point, um, Cowie looks like Bobby Ball, yes, doesn't he? Yes, very um, much so. And obviously, I don't know about the rest of you, but obviously I'm on Rotten's yes. side here. Oh, total stitcher, wasn't it? He's been fucking ambushed by Cowie and Mency from the Angelic Upstarts, who, by the way, doesn't look very punk with his nice centre part. No. <laughs> um, but but they, they think Rotten's sold out because his new band isn't punk and because they've moved on and made their music more complex, mm. which is bollocks. I mean, I'm, I'm on Team Rotten. All the way. Yes. Uh, oh, incidentally, Cowie's co-presenter. If you close your eyes, sounds exactly like Lauren Laverne, which is disconcerting. <laughs> I, I suppose she would, obviously, coming from from that town. But
2: yeah, he's not averse to knobbling a famous act, as as we're going to see mm. on this episode. Actually, ah. mm. something very similar happens later on. Mm. I
1: think mm-hmm. the thing with the uh, the thing with Cowie is he's he's that sort of very confident chancer and hustler of the sort. I'm sure we've all met a hundred of in the industry. Like they're not all called Crispin. Some of them are just called Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: like these are the guys
1: who are always going to be our bosses and they'll be dead friendly to us and then as soon as they turn their backs we don't exist to them. That's who <laughs> that's um, who Cowie is. He's a Yep. He's an operator, isn't he? You know, people like that get shit done, but, uh, you know, they are remarkably ruthless,
2: I think. He also said, it's really important that there are things in Top of the Pops that one group of people should like and another is alienated by. Then it swaps round. The reason the programme is doing well is because we embrace that idea that pop music is diverse. Top of the Pops, to some extent, is a programme for people who don't necessarily like music. (sighs) Don't necessarily buy CDs and who aren't necessarily still part of youth culture. But if they only dip their toe in the water of that culture once a week they watched Top of the Pops now these are very fine words but they're buttering no parsnips with me and it's all down to the BBC's decision to move Top of the Pops to Fridays we can't move away from it because when that happened the concept of family viewing is, is just gone mm. because your mum's always going to want Coro on Yeah. in 2003 the highest rating programme in the country was the episode of Coronation Street where Richard Hillman the Weatherfield mass murderer drowned that got 19.4 million viewers and that is a colossal amount for this century you know England's got to lose in a final for those kind of numbers nowadays
3: yeah I guess they weren't even trying to compete on a level footing with Coronation Street they weren't even thinking well some people will just almost on a coin toss decide which to go for Mm. it's very much all right then Coronation Street has millions and millions of viewers and we'll just skim off another three million off the top who are pop kids yeah
2: you know as his comments for people who still want to dip a toe into music well he's talking to someone like me in 2003 and people like me in 2003 are either already in the pub on a friday evening or getting ready to go to the pub friday night is not a night for watching tele no you've got got to have a major life-changing event to keep me in the house on a friday night were you watching it sarah because we're we're slightly different
3: ages and yeah you know i
1: don't think i was um (sighs) I don't know what else I was watching. I mean, I wasn't watching Cory at that point, but um, I used to, you know, that was a thing that I I saw when I was a kid because everybody watched it. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't. I just, I don't know. It said nothing to me about my life at that point, I guess.
2: I mean, he's a solid choice to oversee a music programme, but the problem is, it's Top of the Pops, which is more than a music programme. Judging by the interviews he's given since he took over, he's clearly a paid-up member of the Campaign for Real Music. Although the insistence on live performances has been relaxed, he's, he's clearly not keen on miming, is he? There? There's a video on YouTube of him uh, giving viewers a guided tour of, yes. uh, of the Top of the Pops studio, which is... Quite revealing, isn't it? Yeah. For a start, I quite like... I mean,
3: he's obviously been given a big budget because yes. everything everything behind the scenes looks the same as front of scenes, as <laughs> yes, it were. Yeah, it's a bit yes. weird. Everything's white plastic. No more darkness.
2: Yeah. Unless the,
3: unless the darkness is on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, David Stokes wouldn't be able to give his usual spiel about the the darkness in the corners of the screen here, because there isn't any, yeah. yeah. It's a bit sort of Carova Milk Bar from Clockwork Orange meets the exactly. Mondrian. <laughs> it's a bit Mondrian as well, yeah. Um, and yeah, he's been given a big budget by the look of things, um, mm. and the whole thing is this sort of um, labyrinthine complex. There's an actual bar called the Star Bar which we're going to yes. come to later. Uh, oh god. And there's the top of the Pops magazine off is right there in the middle of it. Yes. It's not farmed out somewhere else. And as he's walking about, he he has got that trendy teacher energy, hasn't he? He's got that Phil Redmond energy of middle-aged men with in a yes. suit but with long hair, which is always a bit of a red flag. <laughs> in yeah, jeans. Yeah. 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 Um. There's a bit. There's a bit where he goes into the control room and he fades up a bit of Puddle of Mud, who are that dreadful <laughs> third wave grunge band.
1: <laughs> Puddle of Mud with two D's. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs>
3: yes, and, and he goes pretty good, huh? Which uh, which it, it, yes. it plainly is not. And uh, oh, and he makes a point of telling us that one of the top of the pop stages. That That night, we'll later be hosting one of my favourite bands. I saw them the other night, Foo Fighters. Mm. (laughs) Yes, yes, Dad, you're very trendy, we get it. (laughs)
1: It's a bit weird, this, isn't it? It's like, hey, gang, welcome to My Gaff. Mm. People are very at ease now with the the whole branding thing, which I first started to become cognizant of when the maker went under. And it's like, well, they kept Mm. the brand alive Artificially for like a month. <laughs> yeah, thanks. By keeping yeah. the the adverts bit, yes. wasn't it? it? Was the um back Muso pages.
3: bit? Yeah,
1: yeah, the Muso bit, and kind of grafted it into the enemy with the logo on it, which is like. Do you remember that time when they they managed to grow a human ear on a guy's arm? So that they could, <laughs> yeah. they could yeah. like transplant it onto it, so it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies a bit. I just sort of have brand PTSD from that. So it's like, ah, oh, it's the top of the pops brand. Oh no, it's it's basically it's all over at this point.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I, I suppose what he was doing was was kind of in, in that respect was similar to what Conor McNicholas was doing with NME in you know turning it into this monolithic brand that, that went across several platforms and. No. I, I think it's quite mm-hmm. clever You know he's, he's made it into this Syndicated international franchise Yeah
1: he's Ikea-ified it it's, Yes exactly It's, yeah, yeah. it's
3: flat pack It's kit form It's modular It's So mm. you, they had Exactly the same stage Exactly the same backdrop Whether it's in Germany Or Italy So if a band Couldn't make it To the London um, studios They they could perform in one of the continental studios, and the footage would be patched into the main show, which I strongly suspect happened in one of these cases. We're going to see, by the way. So yeah, it, it is this sort of modular, flat packed IKEA version top of Top the Pops. And I think it, it is quite clever as a business model. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know,
2: you've got to handle That's that. That's the problem, though, isn't it? Because people don't want to watch a business model. No, I know. When we were young, we didn't go away and go fucking. Oh, what an amazing business model! That was <laughs> no, last true. Night. But
3: I, th- I think he's he's made a good decision by focusing on live or at least you know mimed performance rather than videos because you could see videos pretty much fucking everywhere at at this point yeah whereas this footage which has got what he hoped would would become iconic um top of the pops backdrop that mondrian white plastic stuff everywhere Mm. so that when that gets resold around the world or you know for all time really right until the, the present day people will look at it it's oh there's there's so and so I'm not going to sort of spoiler a, a very famous star who appears in this episode but there they are on top of the pops rather than just there's the fucking video that we could see anywhere so I, I think that, that was kind yeah. of smart
1: yeah. I guess it was but I I kind of missed the videos there's just a um, because you know as as we know you can get some spectacular feats of artistry in, in pop videos mm. that you mm-hmm. know and things that we, mm. we still talk about now and we still remember and you know the, and when you hear the music that's the image that comes to mind I mean there's you know there aren't really any well, apart from maybe Frankie, like what music is there now where the first mental image that comes to mind is a Top of the Pops performance as opposed to a video? I, that Maybe now that I've said that, that's very controversial, isn't it? But do
3: you know what I mean? Th- there are lots from the past, I, but I, I, I do see what you mean. And I suppose he's made a rod for his own back there because essentially by mm. shunning the artistry and, and the excitement and the spectacle of videos... You then have to make sure that pretty much every episode of your show has got something equally fucking memorable, but yeah, is, is on a which you 're
1: not going to get you 're just not, and so it 's like there 's a variety to it which which is now lacking, which does which makes mm. it more monotonous when everything Mm. is a performance i think that was and also there's the idea everyone now there's the whole thing of everything being curated you know it's like if you Mm. (laughs) literally everything it's like i've curated this fucking sandwich that i'm having for lunch but it's like it's curated videos it's like somebody has chosen that like i would always trust that someone had had a choice in like well there's five videos i'm going to pick this one to show to the people you know so you you would get a sense that somebody wanted you to see it you know but i mean i will tell you what the just as a side note the having the magazine office like right in the studio mm. I, mean, I guess it's convenient in some ways but it just reminded me of uh, i had a brief writing gig in an office in the middle of soho and it was above a, a you know a strip club and so at like <laughs> five o'clock in the afternoon you could just hear this weird rattling noise which i realized was like the the pole it was a pole kind of <laughs> as the weight of a woman kind of hung off it amazing you know. It's quite distracting.
2: When I worked at Paul Raymond, we were right next to the windmill, and the only thing we could hear in the afternoon was the theme tune to Take the High Road, <laughs> because that's what all the strippers used to watch. No way. On oh. the tea break, yeah. I was going to say they were stripping to that music.
1: That's a challenge, you know. That's that is a warm-up.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'd just be there tapping away, and all of a sudden, you would just there. New, 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 new. There we go. Ah, yeah, there we go. Strippers are having a break. God bless them. Your hosts tonight. Born in Paris in 1976, Liz Bonin relocated to Dublin at the age of nine with her parents and ended up studying biochemistry at Trinity College. After graduating, she joined the Irish girl band Chill, but apparently the world didn't need a Celtic spy skills at the time, and after they were dissolved she went into television, presenting the RTE kids program The Den, Telly Bingo, and the Irish fashion show Off the Rails. In 2002, she relocated to London and became an entertainment correspondent for Rise, Channel 4 short-lived digital clock nomenclature breakfast show, which once registered a rating of zero viewers (laughs) one morning. (laughs) Luckily, one of the few people who were watching Rise was Chris Cower, who offered her a presenting gig in May of 2002, and she's now part of a rotating talent pool which currently includes Edith Bowman, Colin Murray, Reggie Yates, Sarah Kaywood, and Richard Bacon. Her partner this week, born in Northwood, West London in 1981, Fern Cotton was the daughter of a sign writer and an alternative therapist who was also a distant relative to Bill Cotton, the former controller of the BBC who destroyed Ruby Flipper in 1976 because a black man lifted a white woman up once. At the age of 15, she began her presenting career when she won a competition to become a TV presenter and was given a spot on the GMTV kids' show The Disney Club, moving to CITV in 2000 to present Draw Your Own Toons and the kids' computer show Mass. A year later, she was approached by CBBC to present the kids' science show Eureka, while also doing the CITV kids' art and craft show Fingertips, eventually replacing Danny Bear in the Saturday show, the replacement for Live and Kick-In on BBC One. It was only a matter of time before she was funnelled into the Top of the Pops presenting team, and she made her debut in February of this year. This is her sixth appearance on Top of the Pops. Wow, chaps. By this time, as Morrissey might have said, in order to present Top of the Pops, one must, by law, possess a fanny. (coughs) As we've discussed before, from the mid-90s, the gender balance of Top of the Pops presenters has completely swung the other way. Why is that? Well, I, I do like this
3: quote that I've, I dug out of uh, an interview with uh, Chris Cowie, where apparently he had a look at every male DJ on Radio 1 and decided they were all too ugly to become a presenter. <laughs> so so that, that's possibly one reason.
1: Well, that's, that really is turning things on its head from where they used to that used to be a, a, a positive plus. Mm-hmm. You, if you mm. look terrifying and creepy then you know <laughs> hey welcome aboard
2: um, yes, <laughs> here are some
1: naive young girls you can slip your arm around on screen they're alright aren't they? They they look good together they, but I mean it's a very it's they're very professional and they're very kind of they're, yeah. they're slightly too professional in a way that makes me wince a little bit yeah. I'm kind of pulled in two directions with Top of the Pops where I get frustrated with it for being so shonky and then when mm. they make it less shonky it's like but that's not Top of the Pops at all. It's supposed to be <laughs> yes. slightly
2: crap. I mean, Liz Bonin's certainly no thicker. And and Fern Cotton has been doing this sort of thing for eight years by now. So they are professional, but you wouldn't necessarily call them pop people, would you?
1: They've definitely gone for, you know, pr- it's presenters above all else rather than, you know, nerds of any sort. Or, yeah. you know. But uh, Liz Bonin is really great. She has gone on to do a lot of nature stuff, mm. doing a, a BBC programme called Animals in Love, where she uh, hung out with some bonobos. Oh. <laughs> And tickled them. It's like, which oh, I think my god. this should this should go in the um, in a complete what well, you're saying. Oh my god! Like this is going to be because we all know. Well, I I don't know if people do know about bonobos. They're the they're the apes that just have sex all the time. But on this occasion, they're not. They're just they're young ones. They're being tickled by li- a delighted Liz Bonin, and it's very wholesome yeah. content indeed. And yeah, um, she's really great, and she's very telegenic and. Um also um apparently she turned down FHM when they were like hey Liz yes. hey Liz come and do you want to come and do us a spread do you want to do that thing where you pull one side of your pants way down over your hip <laughs> and that's the thing isn't it mm. and she said nah, you're all right no you're all right yeah. so fair dues, yeah i like
3: them i have to admit um i'd never heard of liz Bonin until watching this episode of top of the pops the other day yeah she completely passed me by somehow um mm. i know she mainly makes nature programs now she's sort of bit, basically being groomed as the new attenborough but i don't really watch those those shows so she's no, brand new you hate nature don't you? i hate nature um, you hate nature <laughs> you hate nature oh, you hate
2: nature don't you
3: God. Once we, see, once we popped, we can't stop with Dexies references. <laughs> like, yeah, so she's brand new to me. But I've got to say, I could not be more impressed by her. Um, mm. I mean, for a start, there's her backstory. Yeah, she's mixed race of West Indian heritage. Um, yeah. Trinidad on her mum's side, Martinique on her dad's side. And growing up mixed race in a country as white as Ireland... I can't even imagine. I mean, people shouted the N-word at her on the streets in Dublin when she was mm. a kid. And mm. to to have the strength, not only to come through that, but to actively put yourself in the public eye, takes a sort of streak of steel, I would say. And we've seen mm. what happens to high-profile women of colour in the media repeatedly of late. I mean, with yeah. the the way Alex Scott and Naga Manchetti have been treated. So there's there's that, for, mm. for starters. And, you know, Liz Bonin is just... She's obviously really smart, and obviously just really sound. I mean, she also, yeah. as well as the bonobo thing you mentioned, she made the BBC documentary Meat, a threat to our planet. And and she doesn't an mm. eat meat. She does loads of environmental campaigning and she publicly had a pop at Boris Johnson over single use plastics. So, you know, she put mm. her head above the parapet there. She publicly supports Black Lives Matter and all of that. So, you know, she's obviously really sound. Yeah. And on this top of the pops, she's a warm, likeable presence. It doesn't hurt that she has that Irish accent in which yeah. she, she could basically read out a statement telling me that I've been sentenced to death and it would still sound lovely. You know? <laughs> um, and, and because she's brand new to me, and maybe this is unfair, Fern Cotton, not brand new to me, um, she mm. has the disadvantage of having made a very bad first impression on me back in the day, whereas Liz Bonin's brand new. I strongly took against Fern Cotton when she first emerged. And I can't mm. rewrite history. I can't pretend I didn't. For me she, around that time, was the walking embodiment of a certain cultural shift that I hated. Um, Around Mm. the turn of the millennium, there was a watershed moment where this kind of abyss opened up. It wasn't just a generation gap, but I I would say a gap in values and attitudes. And it was marked out in geographical terms by the shift between people who socialised in Camden and Soho and people who socialised in Hoxton and Shoreditch. Mm. And in verbal terms, between people who would never, ever, or would always use the word sick right um mm. so there was this there was this new as far as i this, this is how i saw it at the time i'm just sort of you know channeling my my then self but there was this proudly vacuous postmodern post-everything mentality among the hipsters yeah. of east london where everything was held at arm's length in implied quotation marks as tongs you know and everything was mm. just a bit of a laugh and they were taking over radio they'd taken over tv in the noughties you had you George Lamb and your Nick Grimshaw. And you had what Stuart mm. Lee called those Russell comedians they have now. <laughs> and yeah, right at the front of all that, you have Fern Cotton with yeah. her mean little downturned mouth and her dead shark-like eyes. And I mm. I really thought she was the embodiment of everything that was wrong with the noughties. I, I thought she was vacuous and thick and just one of those renter-presenters who were yeah. colonising the telly. And in many ways, looking back, my, my dislike is irrational. Because that's how TV works, right? Yeah. It's not as if I was ever likely to end up on TV myself. Um, partly because I didn't come up via the enemy to BBC fast track, but rather the um, the melody maker road to nowhere. But I was never <laughs> someone who was dying to get on TV because I thought about it, right? Uh, and I used to talk about this with friends and. and i i thought i hate nearly everyone on tv i scream at it i throw <laughs> things at it i think everyone on tv is a cunt so why am i going to be any different if i'm on there so i mm. th- there's, there's a moment in a in an episode of friends i recently rewatched. right when they're all sat around um watching the gellers high school prom video and they're all laughing because monica used to be fat yeah and, and she goes Shut up, the camera adds 10 pounds and Chandler says, so how many cameras were actually on you, right? (laughs) And um, what, what, what I reckon is, what I reckon is, not only does the camera add weight, but it adds loathsomeness. Unfairly sometimes. (laughs) I, I really think the very act of pointing a camera at someone and thereby you're giving them access to invade your living room and get all yeah. up in your face right immediately <laughs> makes them ten times more hateable than if you just met them in the pub because you're like who the fuck are you? you know fuck off who are you what are you doing up in my face in my living room and yeah when when you look into it Fern Cotton has done a lot of admirable things her, her um her Happy Place podcast and, and the related books speak up about mental health and, mm. and, and and she's written a vegan cookbook, which obviously I approve of, being a, a tree-hugging uh, meat dodger. Um, yes. She's done loads for good causes. She's not vegan, though. No, I know. She's pescatarian. But it doesn't matter. She, she... Like me. Yeah, but by put the book out there. She's making it easier for, for people to, to be vegan. But we agree on that, me and Fern.
2: Fish are cunts, aren't they? when's a fish ever rescued a child from a well never (laughs) (laughs) oh man
3: (laughs) i remember the first time i went to glastonbury um i bought a badge that said fish have feelings too (laughs) just (laughs) just because i thought it was hilarious Uh but but yeah um and the the other thing, and, and I know I drone on about this sort of stuff, but at least she wasn't privately educated, mm. you know, which makes her a bit of a rarity in the broadcast yeah. media, it really does. And plus, on a humanitarian level, we have to feel pity for her, regarding this sentence on a Wikipedia page. Yes. Oh no. Cotton dated Ian Watkins, front man of the band Lost Prophets in two thousand and five. Oh. I mean, just when you mm. thought Billy Piper had some horrors lurking yeah. in that catalogue of exes, yeah.
1: I really, um, I, I really, I did want to say, like, it, it doesn't matter. It's not like she's ever going to hear this, but I hope she's okay. Mm. Yeah, I really do.
3: And the thing is this, right? Even if I did find her dead-eyed and vacuous as a TV host, so what? It's not as if she's any worse than the DLTs or the Anthea Turners of previous generations on that score, right? So I'm I'm not going to say that I've made my peace with her to the extent that I'll ever willingly watch or listen to any of her shows for enjoyment. But, you know, I can just make the decision to quietly avoid her work without getting so enraged by it as I was at the time. And so I I, I do regret going so overboard and, and letting it get me so annoyed at the time not mm. that she'll ever have been aware of my ire or even my <laughs> existence you know but I want to apologize sorry
1: once you start apologizing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like,
3: I know she's caught me on a good day going? you know what I mean because I another day I might double down but you know there we go
1: no it's true though you can just and it sounds really wet isn't it it's like well if you don't like it you can just not look you can just turn away but it is true you can just go it's all right you know go go live your life um and I'll live mine and and
3: we good well, now more than ever, if it's 1977, it's a different matter. But, you know, now you can just not, not watch stuff.
0: Satisfying your musical needs tonight.
1: Benny Benassi, The Coral, D Side, Beyonce, and the official Top of the Pops Top 20. But first, one of the songs of the summer. It's Wayne Wonder.
2: Come on, top of the prize. We are greeted by our hosts, Bonin in a black top with red flowers, Cotton in a green top with shiny bits and a brown scarf, who tell us that there are intruders in the building in the shape of Fame Academy judges, leading Cotton to drop a Pink Floyd reference and Bonin to utter the show's well-worn-by-now catchphrase, it's still number one, it's Top of the Pops. We're then thrown into the tenth and penultimate top of the pops theme, the drum and bass remix of Whole Lot of Love by Ben Chapman, which has been going for five years now. I mean they really should have done a dubstep remix of Yellow Pearl after this, but you know. <laughs>
3: yeah, a nice bit UK garage. Mm. I mean, already we're you know only sort of fifteen seconds into the episode, and there's quite a lot that's annoying, isn't there? Yes. I mean, mm. for a start, Cotton can't even get the Pink Floyd lyric right, which no, kind of wound me up. And <laughs> yeah, these kind of sinister figures, that man and woman, they cut to as if we're meant to know who they are. It's just mm. assumed, but we'll come to that. But um, th- the thing with the oh. the, the credits, the um, whole lot of love, is that halfway through it they spoiler the whole show uh, yes. by telling you what's coming up. Now, Al, I know uh, you know the kind of twists and turns of Top of the Pop's history inside out, and there yeah. were certain phases in the sort of classic era when they did this i don't like it when they i I don't think any of us do
2: really do we
1: no 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 No. i
2: like the surprise of somebody i I don't fucking like and it's going to piss me off when they come (laughs) off yeah you know
1: yeah because you know after that there's going to be something that you do like yes if your tagline is it's still number one it's top of the pot stand behind that and go right what we have chosen for you tonight you're going to like enough of it that it's worth your while and yeah. you know the point is that you know we know what we're doing Yeah, it's just such a disappointment where it's like no don't touch that dial well I literally just put the show on it's you know yeah. seven thirty-one yeah. and 2 seconds like
2: no 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 wait 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 don't go away I'm not going anywhere what during my top of the pops watching phase I used to be absolutely militant about not looking at the telly pages in the in the newspapers because they'd spoiler it and say oh here's who's presenting uh-huh. it and here's two or three people that would be going on it's like no I don't want to know you did the lightly lads thing but with top of the pops <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly, yes. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, I mean, it's like everybody, you know, we, we've we all squeezed a Christmas present occasionally, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> you don't open them all on Christmas Eve unless it's, you know, unless you're in yeah. some Scandinavian countries where that's what they do. Yeah, Yeah. and also <laughs> these two, that also is a mark of of, of kind of weird desperation, like here mm. we've got something completely different for you. That isn't anything to do with Top of the Pops. Well, Mm. I I thought I was going to watch Top of the Pops. What? Yeah, it's almost like
3: saying um, uh, this is Top of the Pops and it's number one. But if if you don't like it, um, there's other stuff here. It's really sort of needy. It's so needy. Yeah. And and do you think they're just shitting it because you know it's uh, Coronation Street starting on the other side? Yes. And that's purely you know uh, the fact that Bonin and uh, Cotton are stood there announcing the start of Top of the Pops means that there'll be some people on the sofa saying, oh. Oh, yeah, that's uh, Coronation Street time, time to switch over, yeah, so they're sort of <laughs> leaping in there. No, 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 don't go anywhere, please yeah you know is, is it is it that you know, I guess it is.
1: I feel bad for them, too, obviously, being in that position, having to tow that line, you know, and say that and mangle that line,, because yeah. they're good, aren't they, and cotton.
2: they're all right, no Simon Bates, though. So I miss the authority and gravitar of Bates. (laughs) He'd certainly tell you not to watch Coronation Street because it it may contain northern swear words. (laughs) To be,
1: to be fair, he is prettier.
2: Eventually, they introduce us to one of the songs of the summer, No Letting Go by Wayne Wonder. Born in Buff Bay, Jamaica in 1972, Von Wayne Charles began his dancehall career at the age of 15 as a member of the Metro Media Sound System. After coming to the attention of Sly Dunbar, he eventually linked up with King Tubby and recorded a slew of records, including a cover version of Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. But when Tubby was shot dead in 1988, he eventually linked up with the producer Lloyd Pickout-Dennis and recorded his debut LP, No More Chance. A year later, he moved to Penthouse Records and did cover versions of Fast Car by Tracy Chapman, Hold On by On Vogue, and Forever Young by Alphaville. Eventually linking up with label mate Buju Banton and co-writing Murderer and Boom Bye Bye with him, for which he can eternally fuck off.
3: Fuck off. Fuck
2: off. By the end of the century, he made a dedicated turn towards R and B, setting up his own label Sing So and working. Working with Foxy Brown and Lisa Left Eye Lopez, eventually picking up a worldwide deal with Atlantic Records. This is the lead-off single from his new LP, No Holding Back, which came out in March. It crashed into the charts at number five a month ago, spent three weeks there on the bounce, then dropped to number seven, but this week it's nipped back up again to number three, and here he is on stage. One of the five stages in the Top of the Pop studio, actually, Mm. all named after crew members, and Wayne and his chums were on the biggest stage of all, called Chris, (laughs) Chris After Chris Cow, <laughs> For sake. Chris. <laughs> and, ooh, it's a bad choice because that stage is looking very sparse, isn't it? Well, yeah, just one man and a DJ and a couple of dancers. His dog. his yeah. oh, <laughs> dog. <laughs>
3: yeah, he's, and he's not really kind of prowling and owning... The stage in a very charismatic way, not to me anyway.
1: He's having a go at a little prowl and trying to like work the crowd and stuff. You say he's
2: prowling about, but only in the style of a kitten that's just getting used to a new home and sees (laughs) its reflection for the first time.
1: You can see like how kind of low down the stage is as well. Mm. I quite like the look of it. I mean, it's a massive kind of lighty uppy. I mean, it's a little bit local nightclub, isn't it? It's a bit sort of, yes. you can see the headlines in the sort of local free sheet. Local nightclub installs new floor and it lights up. I love oh. that. Yes. Yeah. But <laughs> overall, the whole uh, production is, is not, it, it doesn't, set anything on fire does it
3: no i love a lit up dance floor you know i mean obviously it makes us think if we're of certain vintage or even not of uh, of the billy jean video and of course yes. uh, saturday night fever particularly the, yes. um, the 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 front cover of the album yeah
1: yeah. yeah 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 yeah. it's got a long there's a storied history i'm sure there's a you know a, there's there's a long read in the the history of the light up dance floor and um uh, what was the what was the club as well it's in the the common people video
3: oh um yeah eves where smashing happened
1: eves yeah <laughs> so it was smashing
3: yes uh and I, I dare say that we've all been to clubs where smashing happened <laughs>
0: oh.
1: yeah yeah yeah
3: that that is where um where the common people video was filmed and yeah I loved it that was uh the main selling point apparently it was um where um Christine Keeler used to go with Profumo on on their sort of secret right. dates in the 60s or at least that oh. was part of the selling point
1: point. and she'd like put a chair in the middle of the dance floor and sit on it <laughs> funny yeah, yeah yeah,
3: yeah exactly
1: yeah 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 it's storied history is great, but um yeah and wayne wonder is is kind of a, a very small footnote in in this now.
3: It's funny watching this seeing this guy who um clearly by his, his sort of chart position and and his uh, status at the top of the show uh was at least fleetingly a a big deal because you know, as I said, it was my job in two thousand and three to have a handle on what was going on pop wise but I've honestly never heard of him till we looked at this episode. No. I saw the name and and my first thought was you know Stevie's son like like. <laughs> Damien yes. Jr. Gong Marley or, or Enrique Iglesias yeah. but uh,
2: no, he was called Wayne Wonder because he spent lots of time at school sitting there and pondering things. Right. And, and reasoning. So and Wayne Ponder. Staring at the stars. Have been, have <laughs> yes, yes. been
1: called.
3: Yeah, sadly, he's got nothing to do with uh, what we must call the ebony and ivory hitmaker. But um, yeah, the, the name, it does sound like a piss take, doesn't it? Like some really on the nose yeah. comedy character from a second rate sketch <laughs> series. You know, like somebody who's watched. The day to day, and thought, oh, uh, we can do that. And they, I know yeah. we'll call a pop star Wayne Wonder. That'd be hilarious.
1: Oh, it's like somebody, yeah. or maybe uh, you know, a friend of Philomena Kunk, who's like,
2: right? No, I've I've yeah. been
1: no, I had a wonder about that, and I thought it was shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other mm. thing about this set is um, is that he's got on a sort of blue and white tracksuit, which kind of really coordinates, but yes. also with the kind of general blandness of the track and the performance serves as quite effective camouflage. Yes. Yeah, so you can hardly tell there's even anyone there, visually as well as orally.
2: Uh, he's in a blue Puma tracksuit and a white t shirt, looking very sports casual. Yeah. He's gone and got himself an urban starter kit, hasn't he, which consists of some decks. Uh, a DJ with dreadlocks and movable arms to do all the gestures they do when, <laughs> when they're put on a record and got fuck all else to do for the next few minutes. Yeah. And uh, two honeys with a Z on the end in uh, batty riders. Yeah. Very tight cycling shorts. I mean, if it, if it had had a bit more pocket money, he could have, could have got himself a bouncy car and some youths doing some graffiti on a wall and then spinning on their backs.
1: Or indeed a bouncy castle.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, that'd be even
3: better. It's funny you mentioned it being a starter kit and, and, and being, uh, uh, budgetary issues because. Puma right alright it's all about perception and maybe I'm not a sportswear aficionado anyway so I'm the wrong person to ask but I always thought Puma was a bit kind of third division do you know what I mean
2: yeah well it's we could spend hours talking about okay. this <laughs> ever since KRS1 had a go at MC Shining for wearing whack Puma sneakers I've always been an idea sport. so yeah I, I understand what you're saying yeah. at least it's not fucking umbro no but the thing that's it to me
3: um, Puma is only just a step of above what your mum gets you for Christmas when she's got it wrong and she's just yeah or she's gone to like Woolworths and got their own brand thing that's got two stripes instead of three or whatever yes um there's a really good article about this in the Beastie Boys magazine Grand Royal which is really hard to get hold of now but um somebody's archived most of it online um about the birth of Adidas Oh, I'm going to say Adidas right because that's what we said in the 70s and that's what Run DMC say themselves um and Puma because it was two brothers a bit like Lidl and Aldi now isn't it? it's these sort of feuding yes. german families
2: why aren't you fighting each other over the difference between little and older <laughs> <laughs> exactly. that's coming that'll happen
1: trust me yeah uh, you boys and your sports wares <laughs> just as long as it's velcro i'm i'm good like I, I don't understand why velcro has not it's one of those things it's like you know finally we've got the electric car now but it took a really long time because it was being sort of suppressed and everything who was suppressing mm. velcro Mocro is yeah. the best, it, it's the, the, big the best Big shoelace, that's who's suppressing it. Big, big shoelace, shoelace. Yes. big shoelace. That's who.
3: <laughs> Fat lace.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, Wayne Wonder, that guy, you remember that guy. Um, yeah. So, yeah. shall we get onto the song? Yeah. Okay. It's, um, so based around um, the very solidly head-bopping... Diwali rhythm. Yes. Um, yeah. By
2: um, I love it when white people say rhythm.
1: That's I'm not. Yeah, but it would be whiter still for me to say rhythm, yeah. wouldn't it?
2: I think we should lean into it's it.
1: Based on the Diwali rhythm,
2: I believe.
3: <laughs> I, I think we should say it in the whitest way possible. We should really lean into the yes. whiteness here.
2: Do you just say rhythm, or do you really commit and go redeem? Oh. Um,
1: I I don't know. I would refer to corrupt FM on right. on on this. <laughs> <laughs> However, they would do it, mm. you know, based on Diwali Rhythm, uh, which is a loop, a loop created by a Jamaican producer, Stephen Lenker Marsden. Yes, well done. It's something that you kind of can't, it's really hard to fuck it up because mm. it's such a solid thing. Yes. Um, it, this actually would appear in two weeks time as the foundation of, uh oh, brackets, never leave you, close brackets by Lumidy, right. which is the famous one where it's sort of slightly out of key, but in a really compelling mm. way and mm. that was massive and um you know if you don't twitch one muscle or another to it something has gone wrong yeah. and you should probably see a doctor um and also this it would form the uh backbone of Rihanna's debut single in 2005. Yes. So in a couple of years time. So Yeah, it, Bond
2: replay, yeah.
1: But which is a fucking banger.
2: Uh, get Busy by Sean Paul.
1: Get Busy by Sean Paul. Yes. Um uh, feet, sorry, feet Sean Paul sorry, obviously. Yes, course, to yeah. give him his full name. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically
3: his, the his... naughties are the naughties feet Sean Paul. Yes. Let's get it right. You know. And <laughs> yeah. and
1: they were better for it. The thing with that
3: with that rhythm, um, if uh, I'm, I'm going to say rhythm, <laughs> that rhythm um, <laughs> is that. Yeah, it was inspired by the Indian feast of lights, Diwali. Yes. So I don't know how exactly, maybe sort of Bollywood kind of. Are
1: we saying Diwali, right?
3: Oh, are we? <laughs> Diwali. I don't know. But yeah, the thing is, there was there was um, a whole compilation. Yes. In 2002, on Green Sleeves called Diwali, all using the same beat, which. I mean, I'm trying to imagine, I've, I've not listened to it, but imagine listening to that all the way through. Mm. And the thing is, No Letting Go is on there. Yeah. So it's already a year old by the yeah. time it's a UK hit. So if this is the waters you're swimming in musically, if this was your thing, mm. you must be thinking, oh,
2: fucking hell, not this
3: not this rhythm again. I don't know.
2: But most notoriously used a year later in Dirty Kafar by Shake Terror and the Soul Solar crew, which was, yes, oh, which was a, uh, a, a a jihadi rap video, which basically stated that Tony Blair, George Bush, uh, the BNP and Ariel Sharon should be chucked on a massive bonfire and 9-11 was dead good and there should be more of it. Right. Mm. Uh, but the problem is, it's a fucking tune I mean, bad people, good music Yeah.
1: Hey man, you've got to separate the art from the artist, man Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, this is very soft and weedy and um, nothingy Oh yes,
2: yeah, very slight <laughs> Very slight,
1: it's meant to be a sort of Lovely, kind of um, sit on the beach, think about your woman, kind of thing. But it, it yeah. Mm. Also, it's a bit of the I, the point isn't the lyrics, obviously, but like,
2: <laughs> well, cause it, yeah, there's nothing to the lyrics. Oh, lovely lady, I like you. Oh, it's fucking colon, isn't it? Kick in the sun. Yeah,
1: girl, I'm so glad we've dated. Oh wow, you old <laughs> you old charmer, Wayne. <laughs> Um, Mr Ponder. Why haven't we mated? This sounds a little bit it's a bit of a confusing thing as well because it's like oh we're in love, we're sitting on the beach, we're drinking daiquiris, it's all good. But there's trouble in paradise, they say good things must come to an end, but I'm optimistic about being your friend, though I made you cry by my doings with (laughs) Keisha and Anisha but that was back then.
2: Doings fucking hell, that's such a non (laughs) r word that is. My (laughs) non r used to use that word all the fucking time. Whenever she ran me a bath when I was a kid, she'd always used to say "Oh, make sure you go all around your doings <laughs> sorry carry on
1: so is he is he just sneaking in he's just slipping in a little confession of infidelity
2: there. well no he's bragging on um inter the song just goes to show that reggae and its offshoots have absolutely withered on the vine By the turn of the century, you know, if you discount Sean Paul, I mean, he was expected to be a breakout reggae dancehall star in the '90s, but he's gone and taken the R and B shilling here, hasn't he? And from now on, reggae is just going to be something that you can bolt onto your record or your mobile phone advert for a bit of urban credibility, Mm. which
3: is fucking weird because in the '90s, reggae, at least pop reggae, Mm. was huge. Yes. You know, you had everything from you know Shaggy and uh, Red Dragon and Chacodemus and it was enormous. Like every summer, there'd be four or five just inescapable pop reggae songs. But yeah, by the time we get to two thousand and three, it's yeah, it's very much sort of Lego or Meccano yes. bolt on, isn't it?
2: Yeah. yeah, it's your standard male R and B thing here, isn't it? There's a, there's a bit of gangster milkman whistling at the beginning, and he's de- he's dedicating <laughs> it to the ladies. Uh there's a bit of shouting from the DJ who, who goes, you know, or oh, come on London or whatever. Top of the pops. Very offensive to people from Macclesfield who are tuning in. What about their issues? What about their needs? <laughs> Level up the north, DJ. Fuck's
3: sake. We've we've spoken before about how uh, certain pop and dance records have some rap bolted onto them. Yes. But you could basically shrink down everything that Wayne Wonder does on this track. Just call it some reggae yeah. and just stick it in the middle of a Nelly Furtado single or Shakira yes. single or just whatever. Yeah. You know.
1: I don't know if they'd want it, but you know.
2: Yeah. R I and mean, B's a strange genre anyway, because you know, the men always have to sound like soft lads who go on about the ladies. Or almost always catch. That shit there's obviously some brilliant exceptions to that rule but the truly great R&B almost always made by women yeah. even if all what they usually have to say is your skin so what you're looking at me for you fucking tramp piss <laughs> off you know there's huge gobs of female R&B which is essentially no money no fan
3: eh. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the comparison that's staring us in the face here, if we're looking at a guy who started out as a producer before having hits in his own mm. right, and he's wearing dark glasses yeah. and all of that, is R. Kelly. He's oh, kind yes. of like trying to be a sort of reggae R. Kelly uh, mm. by doing this. Yeah,
1: It's not very good, is it?
3: He's flat as a fucking pancake, isn't he? Yeah. He's singing over a backing track, obviously. Yes. So either he's got no in-ear monitor, so fair enough, can't blame the guy. Or he's just a legit terrible singer. I don't know. Well
1: the thing is that I always I always notice this just because I had like <laughs> because I had a few singing lessons one time and so I sort of know how to do it. So you can just hear that everything is coming out on like the last ten percent of each breath. Yeah. Which is like mm. just don't do it to yourself. It's actually really easy to like not do that. And he can't not sing. But there's this unpleasant thing of, like, it doesn't sound relaxed. It makes you feel tense because you're just kind of like, breathe, 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 you know. Mm. And it's it's just, it is unpleasantly sort of just a tiny bit discordant. If you're going to be discordant, like, really go for it. Like, the Lumidee track is so much better than this, even though she's way, way off. Which apparently wasn't her fault. She, She maintains that it was recorded to a completely different backing track. And then the producer just slapped something else on. Yeah. But whatever it is, it's one of those weird things that just sort of works. Right. And this doesn't really yeah. and if he hasn't got any in ear monitor can't they spring for that have they spunked all the money on the fucking lighty up dance floor
2: we've already talked about the branding even the record labels on the on the records that are spinning around on the decks top of the pops logo oh yeah slap right mm-hmm. on them
3: yeah like it's the Wigan casino yes. and we're trying to hide yes. the fact that it's that it's Wayne wonder <laughs> no letting go
2: <laughs> that pot of history though jesus christ King fucking Tubbe reduced to producing Stock Aitken and Waterman songs at the end of his life. Fucking breaks your heart, man. Like the whitest thing. King Tubby meets Sonia Uptown. But, you know, Jamaica did have this
3: kind of long tradition of doing that. Going right back to people covering the Beatles, you know, like Marcy Griffith, doing that brilliant version of uh, Don't Let Me Down. Um, But, yeah, I mean... uh, it's it's just just something that was just a standard thing they would they would churn them out they would hear what's coming on the airwaves over from the mainland yeah. US and quite often sort of like they'd be easy listening or country tracks and then somebody like i don't know Johnny Nash or whoever would just churn out a cover of yeah. it so i i can i can see why they did it i'm i'm sure King Tubby's heart wasn't in it necessarily
2: yeah but the difference yeah. is Simon back then when they did cover songs like that more often than not, they make them better, yeah. or at least equally brilliant in a different way. Yeah.
3: as pedestrian and generic as the lyrics to this song are, um, at least they're a cut above something else in his back catalogue, which you have touched mm-hmm. upon. Boom bye bye in a batty boy head, rude boy no promote no batty man, dem half dead, dis not a deal, guy come near we, then his skin we must peel. Burn him up bad like an old tyre wheel. Uh, so that's you know. not from No Letting Go, that's from the, as you mentioned, the notoriously homophobic single Boom Bye Bye by Bougie Banton, which uh, Wayne Wonder apparently wrote. So if that's true, Wayne Wonder can, once again, absolutely go fuck himself. And uh, yeah, I think maybe we've uh, wasted plenty of our breath on, on the arsehole already.
2: Well, I mean, he did say in an interview, Budger Banton said, Mm. the standard get out clause, number one, the Bible reckons it. Right. And number two, uh, it's about a paedophile, actually, that was living in the area. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, so there you go. So he's
3: conflating gays and paedophiles. Oh, that's okay then, as long as he's only conflating somebody's sexuality with crime. Great, Yeah, yeah.
2: Fine, that's fine. Anything else to say about this?
1: Um, the DJ, um, yeah,
2: God bless him.
1: <laughs> bless him. He's he's giving it the old college try, but he kind of goes take it to the bridge, and the, the, you know, which is not all that at all.
2: No.
1: I, I mean, I guess you know, this is not a moment to do your James Brown thing, really. It's no. like just just leave it.
2: <laughs> Mate, you've done your job. You've pretended to lift an arm and put it on the fucking record. That's it. That's your job just stand there now
1: yeah you've earned your 50 quid yes you know, but, but <laughs> i mean personally i mean, this may be a personal thing but when i hear somebody say take it to the bridge the next thing that my brain wants to hear is dirty babe uh-huh <laughs> that's what i want <laughs> but, you know i don't want to hear more of this yes yeah. you know why would i want that also there's yeah. sort of slightly embarrassing fade out and the DJ's like yeah top of the box london we love you top of the london
2: pop. again and fucking hell, oh.
1: i know it's, it's where they were though, to be fair. Yeah,
2: but they all do that though, don't
1: they? I know. It's terrible. We all feel terrible about oh, it. Oh, yeah.
3: People have gone out on stage at Glastonbury and said, London.
1: <laughs> 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 oh, well, that is embarrassing.
3: Which is quite funny, actually.
1: But yeah, there's that sort of slightly uncomfortable moment of like demi silence while Wayne brings the vocals to a close and the DJ goes, Tab of the Pops, London, we love you. And then everyone just like, Oh, is it over now? Okay. Yay. And,
2: yeah, it's just a little bit, it's it's a sad end to a sad start. Yeah, and the reason for that is it's because the song is so fucking slight, but it's got that rhythm, and you just think, oh, well, this is going to kick off any minute now. He's doing his <laughs> soft-arse bit, but it's, it's yeah. really going to kick in, and it's going to get proper, and some arses are going to be shook. And it never happens.
3: It doesn't really have a dynamic or a structure as such. So when he says take you to the bridge, that you think you're looking around for a bridge. You're looking around. It's more like a, a step. <laughs> a style.
2: Something. A, a take ledge. Take you to the ledge. <laughs> so the following week, No Letting Go dropped three places to number six. The follow-up, bounce along. There, that's when you have your bouncy castle. <laughs> Got to number 19 in November of this year and he was done as a chart act. By the middle of the decade, he'd gone back to covering rubbish 80s songs in a UB 40 styler, <laughs> including a cover of Hold Me Now by the Thompson twins. Oh my god. Which was on some Adam Sandler film I haven't bothered to watch. And when he appeared in the identity parade of Nevermind the Buzzcocks, he revealed that he had gone into business at home selling yams. (laughs) He was still gigging and everything, but he was selling yams on the side. Makes a change from T-shirts and knocked off CDs, isn't it?
3: Well, the trick is to give them away for free, like, you know, the darkness with their pizza. Just uh, a bit of free food.
2: Yeah, maybe if he had the Puma logo burned into him or something, yeah. that oh, think...
3: Like a sort of Halloween lantern just carved in there. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. I think he was just yes. in the pocket of Big Yam at that
2: point. baby, <laughs> you, <laughs>
1: Hello, it's Mr. P
0: here. and the other Mr. P.
2: And we are the hosts of two Mr. P's in a podcast. The educational podcast where you don't actually learn a thing. No, instead we explore the weird, wonderful and downright hilarious things that happen in school from people actually doing the job. We reminisce on our own time at school, funny things we experience each day. And of course, we share your hilarious stories from the Chalk Face So if you work in a school or just want a nostalgic trip down memory lane, sit up straight, fingers on lips, and get ready for the lesson.
1: We love you! To the top three, it's Tropical Totti, Wayne Wonder. Next up, a band who must be huge fans of the old sunblock. Featuring a member of Metal Maniac, Sitnot, these guys decided to form a band just to show that they have a fun side. Now, I don't know about taking them home to meet the parents, but with their own take on the Billy Idol classic white wedding, it's the Murder Dolls.
2: After Wonder gets described as Tropical Totte by Bonin, she describes her next act as a band who must be huge fans of the old sunblock and that she didn't know if she'd want to take them home to her parents. (laughs) It's Murder Dolls with White Wedding. Formed in Des Moines, Iowa, in 1994, The Rejects were a metal band put together by the guitarist Nathan Jordison, better known as Joe who had also played in local bands The Have Nots and Anal Blast. In 1995, Jordison was invited to play drums with a new local group, The Pale Ones, who eventually renamed themselves after one of their early tracks, Slipknot. And by the time they finally signed a record deal in 1998, The Rejects were shelved. By 1999, with Slipknot's debut LP becoming the fastest-selling metal LP in American chart history and well on its way to going double platinum, Jordison developed a hankering for side projects again and was up for resurrecting The Rejects. To this end, he linked up with Wednesday 13, the lead singer of Frankenstein Drag Queens from Planet 13, and Trip Eisen of the New York metal bands Dope and Static X, eventually changing the name to Murder Dolls. They recorded a demo which became their debut LP Right to Remain Violent in early 2002 and the video from its main track Dead in Hollywood featured a guest appearance by Marilyn Manson repaying Jordison for his appearance in the video for Tainted Love and it got to number 54 over here in November of 2002. This is the follow-up, a cover of the Billy Idol single, which got to number six over here in August of 1985, and it's crashed into the chart this week at number 24 and as they've been in the country last month touring with stone sour another slipknot offshoot they popped in to get summit in the can for this episode of top of the pop so yes here we go a prime example of a pre-record job the Wayne wonder one was uh, was pre-recorded as well you can kind of tell by the way they cut back and forth yeah. from the acts to the presenters so yes, yeah, Sarah. In a previous chart music, you you mentioned that you like Slipknot. You saw them. <laughs> did I? M- Evil Panto, I think, was the uh, the phrase. You yeah,
1: used. they were never going to be my faves. You know, I was not their their audience, but I did get it. After a bit. Mm. I mean, I realised that, Yeah, and forgive me if I've told this before, but seeing them at Reading, I realised what they were about and who they were for mm. and what they're doing is actually brilliant and very clever. Not clever in mm. a cynical way, clever in a very sort of emotionally intelligent way, because they realised what the audience was, which is kids and they were like a kids party band. It's like these are grubby yeah. teenage boys. On their first due at Reading without their parents. This is, Reading is like legendarily a kind of really gruesome kind of, uh, rite of passage as it was at the time. A metal crash. Exactly, it was a metal crash. What they did at one point was get the whole crowd, this was on the main stage, so, you know, however many thousands of people, got everyone to, to crouch down. They're like, oh, cr- crouch right down to the ground. <laughs> um, and then eventually, so everybody did this, and it was hilarious to see everyone just sort of hunkering down like like rabbits. And then, jump the fuck up! And so everyone just sprang <laughs> into the air. And it was like, this is so perfect, they understood... That these are still kids. They're still children. They're just sweary, grotty children lurching upwards into adulthood against their will. It's play the fuck away, isn't it? It is play the fuck away. And that's, there is a great sort of truth in that because it's like, yeah, adulthood is terrifying and being a teenager Mm. is extremely intense and very frightening in and of itself. And you can't do anything about it. And like, you know, there are a lot of young people who, who feel that they cannot handle it they're going to look for, for ways out, mm. which can be very dangerous. And Slipknot was saying to them, hey, it's okay, listen to this shit, do some screaming, connect with other people <laughs> who who feel the same as you and know that we see you and we love you in all your grubby adolescent grottiness and just try to rupture your throat in some way with the ah of everything <laughs> and you'll feel better, you know, and tomorrow will be another day. And I think that's, that's really beautiful. That's like life-saving shit. And that has mm. value beyond the whatever musical value they have. I don't actually know how well thought of Slipknot are. Apparently, in the last, because they're still going, and mm. there's a kind of resurgent. Actually, turns out Slipknot were really good thing, but it, it's so far outside of mm. what I know. I just don't know enough about metal. But you know, this is this is life enhancing, life saving shit, which is the best you can hope for from music. So I yeah. knew who that was for. The Murder Dolls. I don't know who it's for. Mm. Maybe there's an audience for it in the same way that there's a type of horror film fan who will watch any old shit with fake blood in it. Mm. Doesn't have to be good on any level. Just give me a hundredweight of horror. Just stick the horror channel on. I'll, oh, you know, that's not me, by the way. Sorry, oh, Christ, no. It's a cartoon schlock nonsense. Yeah. They did actually appear in an episode of Dawson's Creek as like the Halloween party band. Yes, it would make sitcom parents of the time furrow their brows. Mm. That is what it's for. It's a sort of a trash nonsense, isn't it? Really?
3: Yeah, I agree with Sarah about horror films. Um, I'm, you know, I, I imagine we may have similar tastes in that. You know, you, you get. People like Rob Zombie, uh, who's obviously from a similar world, um, mm. making films called House of a Thousand Corpses, and mm. for me, House of One Corpse is always going to be a better film. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe House of No Corpses, but an implied one. You know, mm. that, you know that that's my kind of horror, uh, rather than you know uh, gallons and gallons of blood. It's interesting listening to Sarah's thoughts about uh, who Slipknot are for mm. and what they mean to those people. Because I was I was on the bus the other day, and there was a young couple sat in front of me. They're about fourteen years old, and the girl had like half green, half black hair, mm. and the boy had a studded dog collar on. And they were kissing while keeping their COVID masks on, which was like, <laughs> <laughs> both sweet and weird. Um, but they were basically the same sort of emo kids you might have seen on any bus and in any shopping centre any year in the last twenty, mm. right? And, and it occurred to me that they weren't even a- alive when this Murder Dolls appearance happened yeah. fucking hell. That's mm. fine, um, isn't it? But also that their 2003 equivalents would have been watching this, shouting mm. fucking yes mm. <laughs> in the same way that we, uh, you, Al, me and Neil, shouted fucking yes in 1983 when Twisted Sister came on, yes. right? Because there will always be an appetite for this kind of band among a certain kind of teenager Yeah. if they catch them at just the right age and in other years it might have been Aiden or Motionless in White or Black Veil Brides or whoever's on the front of Kerrang! right now I, I don't know I've, I haven't looked in a while mm. the Murder Dolls served a role and here's where I have to state an interest I know one of the Murder Dolls Ooh. oh yeah one of one of them's a mate A.C. Slade who's on guitar one of the guitarists mm. he's, on the, he's the one on the far left of the screen Yeah. and uh, and he's been in loads of bands including Joan Jett's Hearts and Ooh. Uh, Ooh. Cool. Yeah, and and his own band Trash Light Vision, um, and I, I got him to DJ for me at Stay Beautiful once actually, but um, I can't remember how we got to know each other. I mean, through a mutual friend maybe, but we bonded over a shared love of the Manic Street Preachers, which right. seemed really unusual for an American metaler, you know. Mm. Um, in fact, I once took him to see the Manics in Cambridge, and I got him backstage. And I introduced him to Nicky Wire, who seems quite excited himself. Uh, and of course he was, because Nicky Wire's from the Valleys, and he's got that inner metaller you know, yeah. that inner Kerrang kid. <laughs> and Nicky Wire's always going to be more impressed by A.C. Slade from the Murder Dolls than if I'd introduced him to the bassist from the Young Knives or the Good Books or whoever, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, so uh, I, I got in touch with A.C. Um, about this episode of Top of the Pops to see what, he remembered about it and his answer might seem a little bit um confusing and misremembered but i'll come back to that Uh, but here's what he said oh yeah i was part of that one memory was that we performed it entirely live which is very rare on totps Mm. this really pissed off the other bands that performed that day (sighs) one of those bands was marilyn manson he was supportive of the band until we started to do well So there was Mm. some awkwardness between our two bands, but no drama or anything. But the energy of a live band is always more impactful than a band who plays to backing tracks. That's not a diss or put down to the other bands. It's just an observation Mm. and makes me glad we fought to play it live. Right, so back to me now. Now, as we know, um, Marilyn Manson is not on this episode. However, Mm. there's no evidence that Murder Dolls are in the same studio as Liz Bonin and Fern Cotton. Mm. They just cut to and from screens yeah. Yeah. and because of that kind of we talked about the syndicated flat packed IKEA nature of Chris Cowie's Top of the Pops it's entirely possible that the Murder Dolls did record on the same day as Marilyn Manson yeah whether I mean it turns out it was in London, but it, it might as well have been Italy or France or Germany, you know, mm. one of these top the pops outposts and, and Manson's um, clip just got used on a different show. So yes. if if AC says he recorded on the same day as Marilyn Manson, he probably did. Do you know what I mean? You kinda of gotta remember if Marilyn Manson's about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so that's a little insight into how how the how the show was put together and also just the slight beef between these kind of icons of of that era. and mm. um, so, so the lineup uh, are, that we're looking at it's AC Slade on guitar, Eric Griffon on bass, Ben Graves, possibly not his real name on drums, <laughs> Wednesday thirteen on vocals and Joey Jordison on the other guitar. Yeah. And I guess it was perceived as being Joey Jordison's band. And can I just make the obvious joke? I'll never forgive him for that handball in 1977. (laughs) Um, Sarah's now completely baffled by this. Uh, I mean, Slipknot were very much not for me. And I I did, Mm. I I really appreciated what Sarah said about them. And I, I, you know, I get it. But at the same time, I, I, you know, I wasn't the target audience. I I saw them at the Reading Festival in God knows well, probably the same year. Mm, And I, I just found it so kind of basic and reductive and stupid. But, Mm. you know, yeah, I I know that's what it's meant to be. But anyway, I I had a lot more time for Murder Dolls myself. And, you know, Murder Dolls in some ways are part of this lineage that runs from Alice Cooper through things like the Misfits and the Cramps, you know, just mucking around with horror for fun. And for me, all right, I admit, the Billy Idol cover they're doing here, it's a bit redundant because it's a song that has a brooding menace to it anyway Mm. and you don't make it more menacing by doing a heavy metal death
2: scream in it you just (laughs) screw your face up and raise a fist at appropriate moments yeah yeah um usually when he says shotgun exactly (laughs) because the thing about metal is if you're going to be a lead singer you've got to have proper fucking pipes and he's just got a wet straw of a voice he does a bit the thing with the
1: original is that um, there's some modulation to it because he's sort of doing the the murmuring kind of, hey, little sister, what, you know, mm. and then kind of, you know, revving it at a certain point. But yeah. this is just like proper hairball singing from the, su- hey, little sister, it's, like yeah. <laughs> it's proper <laughs> Eric Cartman, hey, right, little sister, <laughs> yeah. what have you done? Just full gravelly, (laughs) screamy bit the whole way through and everything is whacked up to that setting, which I understand like I laughed. I did enjoy this in spite of myself. Mm. Um, There's also the, what I always bang on about, the kind of American stagecraft, which is full in evidence here. Yes. You know, which is just, I love to see a guy... You know, spin round and point his guitar, and it's like mm. you know, good old Wednesday, just mm. properly going for it at the top, screamy um register of his of his voice the whole way through. It's mm. a, what you call a death growl, I guess, the whole way through. Mm. And
2: it, it doesn't help that with his dreads, he just looks like a fucking potato that's been left in the cupboard for two years. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. now that's a horror film i would like to see what yeah. happens to a, you know, the demon potato that's been left yeah. in the cellar oh my god it's alive <laughs> the singing is not the point of this is it i mean his bre- his breath no. control on this is so bad he actually takes a breath in the middle of the word sister <laughs> which, is, <Yeah. laughs> which is not the place to do
2: it mate i took right against this record i, I was no fan of billy idol but by about this time, I was accepting him as part of the canon. Because in the 80s, a lot of people thought Billy Idol was Rod Vicious. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he'd gone to America and sold out. I mean, he's
1: called and Billy Idol. Like, he literally called himself Billy Idol. What do, what do you people expect of him? I know. <laughs> yes. Like, it's kind of a thing. You know.
2: I fucking love yeah. Billy Idol.
1: He was so cute. He was so cute and ridiculous.
2: It was great. I mean, fucking hell, by 2003, is there anything that makes you feel more old than hearing a song that was part of your life yeah. when you were a teenager mm. but being used as a cover version for kids who'd probably never heard it before? Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> but there's another interesting compare and contrast here between this and the performance of Twisted Sister in the last episode. Twisted Sister had far less tools in their presentation armoury, like just a couple of flash pots. And this lot have got you know, they've got the fucking works, haven't they? Have they? They've got their logos massively by the side, which is it's like a toilet sign for women. In a coffin. But with horns and in a coffin. Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> better lighting, better costumes, but uh, not feeling it. Debatable whether they got
3: better costumes, really. I mean, Dee Snyder. I don't know if you can beat that, but that's for another episode we've already done. <laughs> no, I think they look fucking awesome mm. here, I'll be honest with yeah,
1: you. Yeah, I'm enjoying the look. I mean, first mm. of all,
3: as, as for the song... You know, yeah, I, I you know, the, the cover version doesn't do much for me. I, I had more time for their own material. That, that single you mentioned, "Dead in Hollywood," in particular. But yeah, I, I, th- I think they, I think they look amazing. I mean, for one thing, right. Black, white and red is a colour scheme you can't go wrong with, which is a fact that is known by mm. Manchester United, the Third Reich and the designers of pretty much every vampire movie poster mm. ever. Just black, white and red,
2: it, it works. And shiny right. black as well. You've been waiting years to compare Man United to the Nazis, haven't you, Simon? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. and uh, <laughs> And, you know, they
3: are wearing some fucking killer clobber here, I would say. some Several of them mm. have got the same sort of stacky old goth boots I was wearing myself at the time. And uh, yeah. Wednesday 13 is in this fucking awesome black PVC jacket thing with white piping on it. I would wear the <laughs> shit out of that. He's got a tie on, hasn't he? He's got a PVC tie. I, yeah, I know exactly where you could buy them from. Corporate goth. There. And there's a medical red cross on the arm, which is
2: a big plus. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, if someone gets a nosebleed or does their ankle in in the front row, we can go out and sort them, can we? Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not the target audience for this because I'm
3: too old, even in 2003. Yeah. But if I was those kids on the bus that I saw the other day, um, or the 2003 equivalent, I would have been bouncing off the fucking walls mm. with excitement at this. Yeah. I'm absolutely sure of that.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I probably, uh, when I say I didn't know who this was for, then, yeah, of course, that would be who it was for in a similar way to Slipknot because um Joey Jordison who uh actually passed away last month um yeah uh, I, so I was looking up you know kind of the, a lot of tributes to him a lot of people who, who were very very sad mm. and uh, something that he said was this was when he was in Slipknot but he said our music is so personal each person that's bought one of our records i have something in common with each one of them which is just mm. beautiful. I mean, that's like, I think they were very, all of them were very sincere in that and very earnest and really wanted to, you know, reach the kids. Mm. So, you know, this, even though I I didn't quite get that from this, it took me a long time to get it from Slipknot because, you know, there was a lot of stu- gnarly, uh, schlocky stuff in the way of it. And I was like, what the fuck is this? But I can appreciate this on that level too. I can see that. Mm. There is that thing. It's, it's a gang you can join. You know
3: which one of Slipknot was he?
1: Because they were like the fucking Metal Village people, weren't they? They all had like <laughs> one in the mask. He was number one. Which is they all had, they each had a number. He was number ah, one. Yeah. His mask was like the the pretty one. I'm not sure what it was. And they had various. They had different versions of the masks kind of throughout. Mm. But he always had a variation on. It's like the comedy tragedy mask, but just the oh, sort yeah. of you think of like the emoji uh, no expression one.
3: <laughs> Did he have like his dreadlocks coming out through little holes like? It was a colander one of them had that
1: (laughs) no no he had like very lank sort of sort of just very straight hair over the Uh, top he had to stop drumming because he had um transverse myelitis which is where your spinal cord swells up it's really really nasty um but um he did before that he did all sorts of he had like an amazing drum rig where they'd strap him to it and it was in the shape of a pentagram (laughs) he would do a drum solo and it would tip up and rotate and everything apparently he's you know technically a really good drummer but to me it does just sound like it's like angry wasp dancing (laughs) on a tin of seven up type drumming he's a
2: typical metal muso you know a band the size of slipknot by 2003 they can afford to take their time between albums but he just wants to play man yeah Yeah, yeah. so you know why not start another band
1: no (laughs) resurrect your old band this is that you know they yeah and
2: also for the pop craze youngsters it's it's a great way to see people in massive bands in a more intimate venue even though they're going to ignore your request for People equal shit.
1: <laughs> yeah, everybody seems pretty happy. I I did just want to just want to add to this. This track is from the special edition of uh, the album Beyond the Valley of the Murder Dolls, and uh, I just wanted to read in full the track listing of this album. Yes, please <laughs> do. I can't do the voice. Well, I could do the voice, but then I wouldn't be able to do the rest of the podcast. So you know, no. slip my wrist, twist my sister, dead in Hollywood. Love at first fright. People hate me. She was a teenage zombie. Die, my bride. Grave robbing USA 197666 Dawn of the Dead Let's Go to War Dressed to DePress Kill Miss America B Movie Scream Queen Motherfucker I Don't Care Crash Crash Let's Fuck I Take Drugs White Wedding Welcome to the Strange I Love to Say Fuck <laughs> oh my god let's go to war
3: because the manic street (laughs) preachers had a song called let's go to war just a few years after this i'm claiming it's because i introduced those two you know
1: (laughs) the cross-pollination of murder murder. but yeah it's a fun trash thing and i did chortle all the way through it and i loved all the the pvc strides
2: yeah it always yeah. comes back to the trousers doesn't it sarah trousers are important the leggy mount of chart music hey okay, and at least they actually played it live they're not like those bent cunts who aren't fucking real <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> so the following week white wedding dropped 18 places to number 42 a few weeks later, Murder Dolls were put on hold while Slipknot recorded their next LP, Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses. They reunited at the end of the year for a tour of Europe, but were then put on hiatus due to other band commitments, reunited in 2010 for the LP Women and Children Last. But by which time, Jordison had developed acute transverse myelitis, a spinal inflammation, which temporarily caused him to lose the use of his legs, which led to him leaving or being fired from Slipknot in 2013, depending on who you talk to. Although plans were drawn for a re-reunion of murder dolls at the end of last decade, it never came off, and as we've already mentioned, Joey Jordison died in his sleep at the age of 46. Alright then, Pop Crazed Youngsters, we're going to lob this manky potato into the compost bin and knock it on the head for a while and come back at your heart tomorrow. So, on behalf of Sarah B and Simon Price, I'm Al Needham. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Stay Pop Crazed. Sharp
0: music. Great Hello, I'm Alex Lynch, and this is Out of Character, a podcast about sketch and character comedy.
2: Oh, you're not a wizard, I say, I am. I've got a beard. Oh, yeah, he's right. He does have a beard, actually.
0: In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy.
1: And I sort of couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like, I couldn't believe anything could be that good
0: that moment of uh, self uh, hatred is is your rehearsal that's what that's, you've been doing it your whole life find out what made them venture into it yeah i mean just
2: getting that dvd and then binging through those was just some of the most profound comedy joy of my life
0: i'd spent my whole childhood being i'll be honest a dick talk about their characters and it just made me really want to, like, make her move with her pelvis, basically. Maybe meet some of their characters. Um, because she's got...
1: She's actually only got one leg. And that's <laughs> why she's
0: been I don't know what to say. She's quite terrifying. That is correct. <laughs> and generally, just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. It's all an act, Alex. I'm horrible. I'm an horrible person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's
0: so good. Recorded entirely in the first lockdown... The most joyous bit of idiocy... <laughs> uh, and, and twitter was full of just people going that's awful or that's brilliant that's out of character with me alex lynch hello i'm a spider
1: Sounds nuts which it was coming soon wherever you get your podcasts